The opinions expressed in the Epsilon Theory podcast represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Hi everyone, I'm Michael Correo, Director of Investor Relations and Communications at Salient, and welcome to the Epsilon Theory Podcast. We've got a special edition today covering the Brexit aftermath. Jeremy, I'm going to turn it over to you to kick us off. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here this morning with my friend and colleague Ben Hunt uh, talking Brexit on the Epsilon Theory Podcast. And let's get right to it, Ben. Uh, we don't like to rehash things on on the podcast. You don't really like to rehash things in your in your letters. That's right. Um, so let's just jump right into uh, to what's going on. You called um, this a Bear Stearns moment and not a Lehman moment, and that's actually been quoted in, in numerous areas. And not that's so cool, right? Yeah, not, New not, York Times, and not attributed in some <laughs> other areas. <coughs> Kramer, think I'm looking at you. Um, but explain what that means. Remember, sure. we've, it's been a while since Bear Stearns, and, and so go, go back and, and tell us what you mean by a Bear Stearns moment. Yeah, it's, it's been a, more than eight years, so uh, this industry seems to get younger and younger, so uh, as I get older and older, at least. So, so yeah, let's, let's recap what Bear Stearns was. Uh, Bear Stearns, of course, was a, a pillar of Wall Street. It's one of the leading investment banks in the country. And going into the start of 2008, there was a run on the bank. Uh, it was a run on the bank. It was, it was guys like me. I remember we, we uh, had uh, Bear Stearns as our prime broker uh, with, with my hedge fund. Uh, and we, uh, we, we took our money out. That's, that's the run on a bank that you get with a, uh, an investment bank. And as, as a result of this run on the bank, because they had made a lot of bad investments in the, the mortgage-backed securities and had way too much leverage, that was why the run started. In March of 2008, middle of March 2008, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, took Bear Stearns out into the, the middle of the street and shot it in the head. And then they gave the, the, the carcass to, to, to J.P. Morgan to, to carve the meat off the bones. It's a very uh, gruesome metaphor, but, but entirely uh, apt, I'd, I'd say. For this Game of Thrones yes. environment <laughs> that we... Right. That's right, that's right. They, they released the hounds on the... Uh, on uh, the, the Ramsey, uh, Bolton, Bear Stearns. So, so look, markets, of course, swooned here, and it was a, a significant shock, particularly in the financial sector, which if you've tracked anything in the aftermath of, of Brexit, you saw that was where the carnage uh, was particularly apt, whether we're talking about credit default swaps, which have certainly spiked across Europe, across the world. Here, after Bear Stearns, particularly in the U.S., credit default swaps spiked everywhere. Equity markets swooned. Uh, certainly we've seen that, particularly in the, the, the epicenter of, of Brexit, U.K., but particularly the continent of Europe. Same with, with what happened to Bear Stearns. But then the most amazing thing happens. And this is why I called it a Bear Stearns moment as opposed to the Lehman moment. By May of 2008... All risk assets had almost completely recovered to their pre-bear collapse levels. And I just remember so vividly about that uh, 
rebound in, in, in every market, equity markets and uh, especially in credit markets. You really saw it in the credit markets. Of course, we know what happens, right? Six months later, uh, we got the Lehman moment, and that's a whole other story. But that's why I'm calling it a Bear Stearns moment. Tuesday morning, markets are bouncing here a bit, and the missionaries, like the aforementioned Jim Cramer, yeah. are, are, are out in, uh, in full force. Is that uh, not surprising to you, I would imagine, and very consistent with your Bear Stearns moment? And, and that's exactly what, what I was trying to describe when I, when I talked about the, uh, the, the bounce back in markets. It took about two months, right? It doesn't happen in one day, and this isn't going to happen in one day. Uh, but what you saw was an amazing effort to recreate the narrative around why Bear Stearns was taken out in the street and shot in the head. Right? The narrative became that Bear Stearns was this bad actor, that it was entirely idiosyncratic to Bear Stearns, the mistakes that they made, and that's why they had to be punished as they, as they were. So the, the, the mantra and it was the, the, the Kramers of the day who were, who were saying this, and those out there know who you are, that the, the mantra was systemic risk is off the table. That's what the, the, the narrative was culminating in, in May of 2008 with, a, like I say, a, a complete reversal of the declines you saw out, out of beer. We're seeing exactly the same thing today. Right? What you're seeing today is that the powers that be and here I'm talking about the, the, the missionaries. What I talk about is the game theoretic term that missionaries are the, the purveyors of common knowledge. They're the ones who shake their finger at you and don't necessarily tell you what to think. They do that too. But more importantly, they tell you how to think. And what they are saying, and this is every major media outlet, this is every status quo politician, what they are saying to you is that how you should think about this was a colossal mistake by the UK. That they are going to pay the price, and it's going to be a significant price, but that the lesson from Brexit is going to be don't do what the UK did, and the lesson is going to be that Europe is going to be stronger than ever. Mark my words, that, that, that's going to be the narrative that comes out of this, that the equivalent of systemic risk is off the table from the Bear Stearns moment is going to be Europe's now stronger than ever. And I take it that is inconsistent with <laughs> your view. So stuff and nonsense. Let, let's let's jump right in because to me it seems like Germany's got to be a huge loser in this as the you know core of the EU. So, so look, here, here's, the, here's the risk for Europe. I, also, in this, this piece, I said this was not a Humpty Dumpty moment. And what, what I meant by that was this is not Brexit in and of itself, is not an event that the central banks, the politicians, status quo politicians, this is not an event that they can't put the eggshell back together again. You know, it's never going to be quite the same eggshell just like teacups and partnerships, once you break them, you know, you can glue them back together, but then you've got a glued together teacup. Uh, but you can, you can do a lot with, with glue and tape and narrative. And so this, this was not a Humpty Dumpty moment because this was not an event that's too big for all the king's horses or all the Fed's horses and all the Fed's men to put back together again. Uh, there, there are events that are Humpty Dumpty moments. And the one that gives me the most angst and concern is 
a breakup of the euro system itself, which, of course, the UK was not part of the euro. So the risk, the existential risk, the Humpty Dumpty moment, the Lehman moment, is a breakdown of the euro system. That's what Germany's thinking about. That's what they were thinking about in all their negotiations with Greece. It was never about Greece. It was sending a signal to the countries, particularly the voters, and the countries that matter for the euro system. That's France, that's Italy, maybe Spain, probably not, but definitely France, definitely Italy. So all of this narrative construction you're seeing now is an effort to create a signal to portray the UK as a bad actor, the Bear Stearns bad guy. Foolish. The foolish, actor. foolish right. bad actor. How many stories have we seen about the, oh my the, God. the Leave voters regretting and not knowing what they were voting for, Googling what the EU is? You know, Jeremy, you and I were talking about this the other day, and it's uh, it, it was actually a, a, an observation that was first made by uh, Michael Crichton, the, uh, the science fiction author. And uh, he was saying, and he was talking about Hollywood, the Hollywood press, but God knows it, it applies to the financial press. He was saying, you know, how many times have you, you opened up a newspaper and read an article about something that you were actually involved with? That you really know what this article is, is, is about. Have you ever read that article and thought to yourself, boy, they got that just right? That, that, that newspaper writer, yeah, they, they, really, uh, they, they really accurately described what happened in that negotiation or, or, or that issue. I mean, I've, I've never experienced that. Well, as I said to you, I've experienced that with some magazine writers and, yes. some, and some long-form journalism, but, but hardly ever in an actual newspaper. In newspaper, never. In my experience, never. Right. And, and so we, we read the article about which we have been involved, and we think, oh, this newspaper, is what a, what a joke. How, how could they write this drivel? I need to write a scathing letter to the editor and complain about this. And then you turn the page... And you read another article about, as Crichton said, Palestine, or you read an article about you know, some other movie studio, and you think, huh, that's interesting. We accept that at face value. Must be right. Must be right. It's in the newspaper there. So I, I think, and something I, I, I try to describe, that there, when, when we're reading these messages, there is, there is a conscious attempt to try to... Um, move our opinion and that's true whether it's an overt or obvious effort like an editorial page or an editorial that's that's the purpose to 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 say an opinion and try to convince you of something but that same effort is in everything is in the choice of articles that are written the words that they're written and it's and it's seeing this through that lens that's such an important part i think of what i'm trying to convey in epsilon theory so when i think about the choice of articles that are written Oh, these poor, you know, exit voters who they didn't really know what they were voting for. And boy, I wish we could have that vote back. It's just it's just part and parcel of this effort, again, to create that narrative of the UK as the foolish, bad actor who's now going to pay the price. But don't worry, systemic risk is off the table. And for obvious game theoretic reasons, as you mentioned, signaling to try to keep the this EU, particularly the currency union, you know, strong and held together because uh, I think everyone knows all all of these missionaries that are out talking. They know that would be a Lehman moment. That's right, and and there there are specific events, uh, paths that I think you could have a euro breakup. 
One would be, and I've, I've written about this a, a, a fair amount, uh, China devaluing its currency in a massive amount, essentially floating the currency. Why is that a create such pressure on the euro system? Because it's the European banks that would be demonstrably both insolvent, but also now illiquid with that sort of, of shock, that sort of deflationary atom bomb of, of, of China floating the currency. More at home in, in Europe and where they're directly trying to signal would be a bad election or a, a bad referendum is if, if, if that were possible in, again, a country that matters, right? certainly a France or an Italy. I, I do want to talk about the referendum issue a little bit because you often see you now people talking about dominoes and so this is going to lead to more uh, referenda being announced in Europe. I actually don't see that as a big risk because what, what, what happened in the, in the UK, I, I think, was that David Cameron failed to learn the, the, the lesson of, of Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> right, right. So, so, so you can we make sure tell everybody the Bodie McBoatface story? For, right, for right. So, so this was the um, it was the, the the Royal Sciences, some some Arctic exploration uh, scientific group, government funded scientific group in the UK. They've uh, launched their new polar exploration ship, and so as a, a gesture of uh, public relations, they said, let's let's have a a vote. Let's let's have a referendum on what we want to name this noble polar they, exploration they, ship. They, they tried to be the cool NASA social media. Yes, yes, exactly. And it backfired, exactly. And, and how did it backfire? Because the, by an overwhelming margin, the winning submission for naming the boat was Bodie McBoatface, <laughs> one in a landslide. And as and this was this was the so tone deaf. I I, I can't believe they, they didn't stick with Bodie McBoatface. But they said, no, 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 we're not going to name it Bodie McBoatface. We're going to invalidate the referendum. We're going to name it after, yeah, I think they named it after Sir, Sir David Attenborough, yes. something like that. Lord, Attenborough. Oh, I was sure it was going to be Lord Nelson. Right, 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 right. No, it had to be some scientific guy like, like, like Attenborough. So that was a good, respectable name. But there is, this is the, the lesson that, that Cameron didn't learn, which is that you never call a referendum why in the world would you ever do that? Now, I know why he did it, right? He's made that promise when he ran for, for, for election. Look, it's not that you're going to break the promise. You just keep delaying it. Now's not the right time. But he said this was the time because he thought he'd win. Right? But it's like a lawyer asking a question of a witness when you don't know the answer to the question. Yeah, big right? mistake. Big mistake. Rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. So that's why I don't think we're going to see this cascading series of, of referenda so, Europe. So before we get back to Europe more yeah. broadly, let's come back to Brexit and sure. what's going on in the UK and the refer and this this mistake of a referendum that occurred. Right. Uh, let's talk about Article 50 in the process from here. So a lot of press has also come out, uh, and again, part that's part of this part, part of, of the narrative, is, right? Part, part of the narrative is that hey, it, this isn't we this isn't a binding. Don't worry, folks. It's not a binding referendum. Number one. Number two, they haven't voluntarily um, invoked Article 50, uh, so this is going to be a negotiated process, and who knows how long it's going to take. Um, you've got kind of an interesting take, Ben, on, on Article 50 that I think Well, well two things. And in the, there was a, a spate of articles and commentaries saying that because of the time frame allowed in Article 50, two years to negotiate this, because of the statements that Boris Johnson and... Uh, 
others made uh, immediately after the vote. The commentary was, uh, this, is not, this isn't going to happen. It's non-binding. It's not going to happen, et cetera. And, and, I, and I think that's so flawed, such flawed reasoning, precisely for the narrative construction that we are talking about before. Europe can and will and must take a very hard line on this. And they can absolutely interpret Article 50 in a way that accelerates this process. So the, what, what people point to in Article 50 is the very first section or paragraph that says the member station, according to its constitutional process, must ask to leave the European Union. Yeah. So member nation? The, the member nation. Member nation. Right. Right. It, sorry, according to its constitutional process, which I, I think is kind of the, the, the key phrase there. Well, you immediately saw Juncker and some of the other uh, foreign ministers particular, in particular, it's this classic good cop, bad cop routine that you see played out here. But Juncker and some of the, the Brussels functionaries are saying, well, they had a referendum. That's their constitutional procedure. We are going to take that as a de facto proclamation of Article 50. Right. The interpretation of this agreement is held by the group that wants to punish the UK and wants to kick them out and send a signal as, as fast as they can. Now, look, if, if in fact it's possible to have another referendum and get the UK to come crawling back and say, pretty, pretty, please, we didn't know what we were doing. Sure, they'll give them that opportunity. But that's death in terms of UK politics. That can't happen. No, that that was the whole. That was a primary reason for the Lee voters was Correct. to get out of this Brussels Absolutely. system that they had that they feel like they don't have control over because it's not a currency. I, I think issue. rightly so. It's not a currency issue, but to to protect the currency, Brussels, the EU, must create this narrative that you screwed up, you're going to pay the price, we're going to be stronger than ever. And you see that you're going to continue to see that in the interpretation of Article 50. Because once that's announced, once by your constitutional process you ask to leave, step two is, well, we negotiate an exit agreement that can take up to two years. There's a two-year time frame of that. Well, it could take two years. It could take two weeks. Because you're negotiating it with the EU. The EU says, okay, here we're going we're, we're to just negotiate this for you. Here's, here's, here's our deal. Here you go. You asked to be out. We've negotiated. Bye-bye. That's, that's, so the whole notion that Article 50 is, is somehow like the, <laughs> the analogy I'll use is like the U.S. Constitution. And so you've got two parties within the United States who are, who are appealing to some constitutional value here in a, in a separate independent judiciary is nonsense. Right. This is going to be interpreted by and it's going to be enforced by the organization that wrote it and now wants to take every chance to send this signal and create this narrative of the Bear Stearns bad actor in the form of the UK. I do want to go back to the, what the process, what they're trying to signal against. And, and like I say, I don't think it's the referenda because there, there's no um, party in power on the continent that wants to get out of the EU and wants to uh, announce a referendum. Right? So, so the, the notion of agenda control is, is, is maybe the most, or one of the most important principles in, in politics. 
the people who control the agenda in terms of setting the, the, the calendar for votes, they're not going to make the same mistake that David Cameron did. They've clearly learned that lesson. They've learned the lesson of voting vote face. Right. Don't, 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 call, don't ask a question where you're not sure of what the answer is. Now, there's one thing that they can't control the agenda of, and that is scheduled national elections. So what I'm looking for is you'll, you may get some signal in, in, in Italy. They've got not a national election, but a referendum on what they're doing in terms of a, a really a constitutional review. I think, actually, that the narrative creation will be successful enough to, to, to help the, uh, the, the, the ruling party there. Because it is, again, a referendum. You saw this in the Spanish election, where the Rajoy, the, 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 I'll call it the incumbent, although the problem in Spain is that there, there is no uh, majority coalition that can be formed in, in Spain. So that's why they keep re-voting in hopes that somehow this, this logjam gets broken. But Rajoy and the, the, the incumbent got a few more votes, frankly, than was expected. Uh, exactly as you would expect if this narrative is starting to kick in uh-huh. and, and, and take effect. Where the narrative, I think, is going to have a lot of trouble because time passes. You know, Lehman came six months after Bear Stearns. What I'm looking for are the French elections in 2017 because that's where you've got Marine Le Pen, the National Front. She's going to get her day in court, so to speak, with a national vote in France. And a bad election there, bad in the sense that the National Front is able to form a, a ruling coalition, that's the Lehman moment. Because that's bye-bye for the euro. So talking about right-wing nationalism, yeah. we had our, our, our fa- one of our favorite uh, of this wonderful um, set of presidential candidates we have here in the U.S., uh, Mr. Trump, was uh, happened to be in the U.K. Uh, for Brexit. Hilariously, I thought trumpeting the uh, brave, vote, brave votes for uh, for Scotland when, <laughs> right. in fact, right. they voted to Scotland stay. Scotland wants to get out of this, right, <laughs> right now out of the UK. Right. Uh, so, how does this? How does all this? The narrative, the effect of Brexit. How does that play into the the U.S. election? Yeah, I'll say two things. So, so the the, the first I would note is that immediately after Brexit, I saw Peggy Noonan write up a piece on this, and some others said the same thing. They were saying, oh, you know what, the, the way that the Europe should handle this now, uh, Germany in particular, Angela Merkel in particular, they need to be uh, gracious to, uh, to the, uh, not only the UK, but, but, but understanding and gracious to the factions, the political parties like the National Front, who are, are having similar uh, initiatives, similarly want to, to exit the EU. What they need to do is they need to be nice and, and that, that notion of appeasing a Marine Le Pen is as insane as the notion of you know, Neville Chamberlain appeasing Adolf Hitler, the Munich conference. It's insane as in the US primaries, the notion of appeasing Donald Trump, right? You can't appease Donald Trump. You can't appease yeah. Marine Le Ted Pen. Ted Cruz tried that. Right, right, exactly. See, see, see how far that got him, right? So, this whole notion, this is the, so that's the first thing I want to say, that the notion of appeasement to try to co-opt these uh, elements, these political parties, these political movements that, that are anti-globalization, that are anti-immigrant, right? that are anti-trade. Right? They, these, these are the, 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 
the, the call words. These are these are the 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 reason the the for living for these groups for these political parties that can't be appeased. So I, I think you're going to see more and more of the hard line taken, not not the soft line with, within Europe. So second point, it will work. It will work for a while, just like it worked for Bear Stearns and markets after Bear Stearns. This sort of narrative construction is incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. I say we already saw it today. I was, I was listening to Kramer talking about how, you know, Europe's going to be stronger and this insane thing that the UK did, this one-off issue. But here's why it, it, it only works for a while. It's not a one-off issue. We have the, and, and what's driving this, my belief, is the same thing that drove the political polarization and the same sort of political movements, populist, anti-globalist, anti-immigrant, anti-free trade, you saw exactly the same sort of movements in the 1930s. Why? I believe because that was the last time you saw such massive debt and the socialization, the politicization of debt. Because massive debt does lead, it inexorably leads to greater wealth and income inequality. I mean, I'm saying that's good or bad, I'm just saying it is. And that leads to greater political polarization, and we are seeing the fruit of that political polarization in the U.S. election, in the U.K. referendum on Brexit. We'll see it in the French election in 2017. We're going to see it in the German election in 2017. It's within and between every country on Earth. So this sort of Brexit event is not going away, and that's why I think this is a Bear Stearns moment with a Lehman moment still to come. You've talked a lot about crystal balls being broken, yes. models not working in, in today's world, and I think uh, you know we saw that with Brexit and the polling not being, oh my God. Know, not being accurate and, or, or potentially being... Manipulating, manipulated on, the in, parlors. on, on bet, bet fair and the other uh, the other ways you could place wagers on on this outcome, um, is that uh, is that something that Hillary Clinton should be afraid of uh, in the U.S. election that that we're really underrepresenting this far this kind of angry vote um, that seems to have shown up in uh, the U.K. Well, I'd, I'd say a couple of things about how it translates over into the to, to the U.S. election. The first is that the notion of these um, betting markets where we attempt to predict outcomes because of the, the line, essentially, right, of, of, of people placing wagers on things. And I wrote a couple of, of you know, brief tweets and notes about this. Look, you have to understand how these betting lines work. If It's not based on how many people, right? An election is one person, one vote. Betting lines are determined entirely by how much money is being wagered on one side versus the other. Because the, 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 the betting line is simply a way of, of, of balancing out for the bookie so that you've got an equal amount of money on each side, not an equal number of votes on each side. So I figured, you know, Zero Hedge ran a piece that thought, you know, 25,000 pounds could really swing the, the, the betting odds. Could be true. What I'm certain of that with a, a relatively small investment, call it a million pounds, you could move about $10 trillion worth of global assets by a couple of percent. Right? If, that, if that's not bang for your buck right, to try to, to, to influence, then and that will influence the polls. That will influence certainly not just the, the, the markets themselves, but the, 
I'll call it the, the snowball effect for that sort of, of, of influence is, is enormous. I think there are similar sources of influence, not in necessarily embedding lines, but similar sources of influence that you get throughout you know, media efforts to try to understand the, the, or predict the outcome of a, of a political event like a vote. But what I talk specifically or mention specifically for the U.S. piece is that the way this is going to play out, I think, is it's going to give more credence to third-party candidates in the U.S. So you look at the most recent polls, Clinton versus Trump head-to-head, Clinton's ahead by five points. Toss in libertarian candidate, toss in the green candidate, that lead goes down to one point. Politics today is an expression of identity. And you're going by by adding these other candidates. This is not a an election where people are try or want to express their identity by voting for Donald Trump or for Hillary Clinton. They're voting against the other person. So as as an expression of identity, which is what our politics have become, as an expression of identity, that's going to encourage people to express that through voting for third party candidates. And that changes the dynamic. That's what I think Hillary Clinton really needs to be concerned about here. I also saw something um, or noticed something quite interesting uh, in the Brexit aftermath, which was the breakout by demographics, specifically by age groups. Yeah. Right. The young voted overwhelmingly to stay. I think it was 75 percent plus in the 18 to 24 range. And then it was the same type of number in the you know, 60 and over range to to leave. So the angry voters seem to be. These the, in the older set, and we had a younger set that said, "Hey, look, I, I like maybe it was I like traveling around the EU and having being able to move, being able to have jobs over there, and all these whatever it whatever it was, right? right. right. You had to, you had the the young uh, disproportionately supporting Remain, um, and that that will was thwarted, right? In this uh, in this uh, referendum, and it reminded me a lot of what you saw on the Democratic primary side over so here true. in the U.S., where you had overwhelming support from the youth vote for Bernie, uh, and it was the older set that really pushed Hillary over the top. Uh, again, you've got this young young voter block that I think is feeling, um, you know, uh, very underrepresented and and uh, and without a voice. Yeah, I don't know what to do with that. You know, I, I, the you know one response is well, if you're feeling underrepresented, they'll you know. Be sure to go out and vote because I, I think the turnout there was was significantly less on the the, the younger side as well. I, I think there's so many dimensions that you can um, observe right, that that in a, an election could could feel like you're underrepresented. Anytime you lose, you feel underrepresented, right? and and it gets back to that notion of, of of one person, one vote. I could think you could, you know, I don't think anybody would try to weight votes. Uh, by um, uh, property, right, or how much money you pay, or how much taxes you pay, right? That would that would be a, a waiting scheme that I think no one would um, approve of. And yet, you know, you look in history when you think about kind of the development of voting schemes and and, and how these different election approaches came to be. You know that was that was absolutely considered as, as as something that you would want to take into consideration, age or the number of years you have left to live within a system. You know that's it's it's unique today. I, I've I've never seen this before as as a, an argument being made that that's how votes should be weighted, right? On the basis of how many years you've got left 
as opposed to the, the uh, younger, less experienced should have more, but more, more of a, that's right. Their, their vote should be weighted more because they have more years to live. This is an argument you're making. It's an argument, no, but it's an argument I think it's we've absurd, heard, but we've heard, but, but this, we've heard it. It's yeah. the first time we've ever heard this sort of argument. And the arguments of the past have been based on, well, you should vote, you should weight votes in terms of uh, money, or you should weight votes in terms of uh, education. You know, these, these were absolutely used in the U.S. for a long time to disenfranchise people. And um, uh, it's, it's interesting, we're talking about kind of reverse uh, proportional disenfranchisement now based on age. Crazy. That's fascinating. We're getting close. We just we just passed the thirty minute mark, Ben. So I want to have one last question for you before we wrap up this special Brexit edition, and let's go back to the financial markets. Yeah, a lot of our yeah. a lot of our listeners are, are listening in to to glean insights on what this means for financial markets. Um, I, I don't want to steal your thunder, but you were calling months ago for weakness in European banks, specifically German banks. I don't know if you've checked Deutsche Bank's stock price lately, but that was a very I did. Prescient, yes. <laughs> that was a very prescient call. Um, credit spreads on, on European financials have, have blown out again. And then there's China, uh, which uh, I think is this elephant in the room we've kind of been distracted from with Brexit. Um, what's your take from the investment standpoint going forward? Well, you, 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 you put your finger on, I, I think, the two... I know we're going to call them canaries in the coal mine because they're 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 more than just indicators. They are the actual uh, mine accident waiting to happen. Right? It's it's it is. Uh, you have to look, I think, at what China is doing with their currency. They're hoping to devalue gradually, but particularly now with what's happened with with trade around Europe and the possibility of recession, not just in the UK, but returning to recession and on the continent, that's going to hurt demand for Chinese exported goods. Right? That's what they've been pointing to for years now as the root cause of why they need to devalue their currency now. Because just the just global demand for what they can sell has been weak. So this is all putting more pressure, particularly if the dollar continues to appreciate, on that Humpty Dumpty moment of China floating their currency. The other Humpty Dumpty moment, like I say, is a bad election in France in 2017. So look, between now and then, I think we've got some time. I think you're going to see uh, risk assets, global markets recover for this sort of narrative construction I'm describing, just like we saw a recovery from March of 2008 to May of 2008. I think we've got time to look at our portfolios and think about how do I survive what could come down the pike. And you know, look, I'll say that, as we know, or you can quote Mark Twain on anything or attribute any sort of quote to Mark Twain. But the one I love, of course, is history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. So I don't think you can say, well, six months and, you know, we've got the Lehman moment following Bear. But Lehman does follow Bear. And that the, the issues that were at the heart of Bear Stearns dying uh, was not idiosyncratic to Bear Stearns. It is part of this polarization of, that's driven by massive debt, and it doesn't just go away. So I think we've got some time. Don't be fooled by the narrative, by the, the narrative construction, uh, and we can get through this. What I'd recommend in closing is to make sure that you read Ben's uh, 
real classic of the year. I think Hobson's Choice, uh, your, your letter from uh, a couple months back, uh, your two most recent notes, Cat's Cradle from last week, and then uh, Waiting for Humpty Dumpty this week on Brexit are also must-reads. So please check those notes out on the Epsilon Theory and SalientPartners.com websites. Uh, and stay tuned for our next entertaining podcast. There'll be nothing. We have we have a no shortage of no shortage. That's right. To cover. That's right. So, uh, Michael, I got to go plan my British vacation. <laughs> <laughs> great, great time for that. Thanks everybody for listening. Catch you next time. <laughs>